Facebook engineering is commonly described by two words, move fast. Building products quickly has been a differentiating characteristic of the company since its inception. From the longtime engineers to the summer interns, Facebook instills a sense of immediacy and opportunity in all of its employees. The goal of Facebook is to make the world more open and transparent, with the intention of creating greater understanding and connection through internet services. More than any other company in history, Facebook has enabled people to communicate with each other via simple user interfaces and real, authenticated human identity. Facebook must move fast, because the vision for Facebook is without precedent. It may feel like the Facebook mission is already finished, because you can already use Facebook to connect with anyone across the world with an internet connection. But once you are connected to somebody on Facebook, there are only a small number of interactions that you can take. Sending a message, sharing a photo, broadcasting a video stream. There are so many more parts of our lives waiting to be digitized, and many of these require a real identity system to work properly. More than any other company, Facebook is positioned to expand our system of real-world human trust onto the internet. The depth and breadth of the engineering problems required to accomplish this goal demands that Facebook move fast. To move slower would cause all of us to pay the opportunity cost of having to wait longer to interconnect our global society. Pete Hunt worked as an engineer at Facebook for three and a half years. At Facebook, he helped build React, a set of technologies that have significantly improved front-end application interface development. After the Instagram acquisition, Pete was the first engineer from Facebook to join the Instagram team to help bring the two companies together. Pete left Facebook in 2014 to start Smite, a company that made trust and safety tools for marketplaces and social networks. Smite was acquired by Twitter, where Pete now works on engineering problems relating to trust, safety, health, and infrastructure. Pete joins the show for the first of several episodes with Facebook engineers. In these episodes, we will explore the engineering practices of Facebook, from scaling Facebook's PHP monolith to open-sourcing React and GraphQL. Other topics will include management, onboarding, and product strategy. Our goal is to present a holistic picture of how Facebook engineering works, so that other organizations can learn to adopt practices that will allow them to move faster. We hope you enjoy this series on Facebook engineering. The Find Collabs Open has started. Find Collabs Open is our second Find Collabs hackathon, and we're giving away $2,500 in prizes. The prizes will be awarded in categories such as machine learning, business planning, music, visual art, and JavaScript. If one of those areas sounds interesting to you, you can check out findcollabs.com open. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. The goal of Find Collabs is to help you find collaborators and build projects. With that, let's get on to today's episode. Pete Hunt, you were a longtime engineer at Facebook. You founded Smite. Smite was acquired by Twitter. We're now here at Twitter. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily once hey, again. It's uh, great to be back, Jeff. When you joined Facebook, the engineering organization was quite small. It was around 1,000 engineers. What was the engineering management structure when you joined Facebook? Oh, man. So I, I joined Facebook back in the beginning of 2011. It was actually right after the movie The Social Network came out. And I remember I was in grad school and my, my mom watched the movie at around the same time I got the offer letter. And she was like, I don't know if this Mark Zuckerberg character is going to be a good person to work for. Uh, but it ended up being a great experience. So just to kind of get a sense for when in history that was, it's a long time ago now. So when I joined, I think the whole company was around 3,500 people, something like that. And we, I think engineering was a little under a thousand in a separate building in, in Palo Alto. So when I joined, I had an, like a recently converted, you know, eng lead, like turned into a manager, you know, person that probably preferred being a programmer more so than a manager. I don't actually know, but that tends to be the archetype of that type of person. And I think, you know, 
or maybe two levels down from the VP, something like that. Does that that make sense? Yeah, it does. And was Facebook developing its engineering management structure at the time? Was it trying to emulate Google or Microsoft? Did it have a strategy in place or was it just kind of winging it? Well, I was pretty junior at the time. I just kind of kicked off my career. So a lot of those decisions were opaque to me. But they had just come off of this big code quality like company objective. And so I kind of arrived right at the end of, of kind of modernizing the development practices. And I think that there was a somewhat of a rebuild of the management practices as well. So, you know, when I was there, boot camp was already in place. They had some management training programs already in place. So it, it was actually, you know, there was some maturity to it. And I don't know if, if much has changed since then. Certainly, you know, I was there for almost four years and, and that type of thing didn't change that much. It just got bigger. When you joined Facebook, you went through boot camp. And in Facebook boot camp, you learn a lot about how Facebook operates as an organization. Was there anything you learned early on that surprised you? Yeah. I mean, there's a the things that Facebook did with vanilla PHP <laughs> was pretty impressive. I mean, they built this whole massively distributed SSH client that would run across 100,000 nodes in multiple data centers. And that was like written in, it was like a single PHP file that copied itself to every server. And it was like totally crazy. So I think that's the first thing that stuck out was how far they pushed PHP. Other couple things that, that were a little surprising to me coming from grad school, which may or may not be, depending on where you've worked, all the development was done and I think continues to be d done on remote dev servers. So they would give you a shared big beefy box in a data center, and then eventually you would graduate to your own allocated box in a data center. And so with a lot of the the challenges with kind of developer velocity, the the first thing that they solved it with was just giving the machines lots of CPU and lots of RAM. So that was another thing that somewhat surprised me when I joined. The the move fast culture is is very, very real. I mean, they take it super seriously. So my, you know, I, I had you know, worked a full-time job before or in between undergrad and grad school. And, you know, I sat around for a couple of weeks waiting for permissions to get access to the repo and to get access to production. And I mean, I wasn't productive for my first month because I just didn't have permissions to do anything. And at Facebook, you know, they they have you landing commits on the on master in the first day and you're in production. If you're not in production in your your second week or or queued to go to production in your second week, like you know, you, you get pulled aside by your bootcamp mentor and you're like, hey, you got you to gotta speed it up. And out of bootcamp, you started working on videos, Facebook videos. People may not remember, but back in 2011, video was not as pervasive on the internet and it was not as easy to work with. It was not pervasive and there certainly weren't easy tools for working with video, at least compared to today. What was hard about working with video in 2011? There was a ton. and. If you can remember that far back, I don't know if streaming on Netflix was particularly popular. Hulu was just starting to get popular. Um, and it was in that era when you would watch Hulu and the same, I mean, this happens a little bit today, but like the same ad would come up every single time because they couldn't fill the, the inventory. And so video was like a hackathon project from two or three years before I joined and nobody was maintaining it. It wasn't a source of revenue for the company. They didn't even have that on the on the horizon. So it was it was a lot of fun, you know, when you work on something that, you know, is important and, you know, millions of people use, but is does not have kind of a bunch of PMs on top of it or a bunch of execs kind of watching everything that you do. You get a lot of freedom to to work on whatever you want to work on. So that was that was a lot of fun. The big challenge when when we joined was or when I joined was I joined a team of one other person who kind of transitioned off of that team to go work on mobile, just like a lot of other people did at that time, because there was this big pivot to mobile, you know, maybe six months after I joined. And the first challenge was every Sunday morning, I would get paged pretty much for this service. And again, remember, this is this is Facebook. So most stuff is like written in, in PHP and is in a, this monolithic app, which means that there's a team that that kind of handles a lot of the pages for you. And, and a lot of a lot of times like your average product developer doesn't have to deal with being paged. But for this service, again, it was a hackathon from a couple of years ago. Somebody had 
like hacked out this Python script that ran on top of a single MySQL database with this ad hoc, you know, implementation of, of, you know, Amazon SQS, right? Something like that. And the queue would get backed up every Sunday morning for some reason. I think people, the explanation we had was people were uploading their, their videos from Saturday and Friday night all on Sunday morning. I don't know if that was actually true. Uh, but anyway, the, the queue would get backed up and then I would have to go and like restart all the, the encode nodes just manually. And so one of the first projects that I did was basically try to, to modernize that code base, which was take this kind of custom Python MySQL based solution and move it to the standard Facebook kind of SQS type of thing, like task queue. And that meant basically porting the whole thing from Python to PHP and running it in the, in the monolith. And so that, that ended up being like a net reduction in lines of code. What we call the async tier team, which was the SQS type of thing, ended up manage, like dealing with a lot of the on-call issues. And it just it made everything a lot better because it was a real maintained service, not this ad hoc Python script, which, by the way, lasted us like three years as the second largest video site in the world, which is kind of cool. In your work on video, you integrated the video product with timeline and the photos products and these were really high visibility products what was the process for getting your new features your new products merged into products that were so important because at many places this would be a a multi-step high sensitivity process with lots of management layers that would have to sign off on things so what was the process at facebook yeah that's a great question so there were some things that were opaque to me, like where the designs came from. We would generally work with a designer who would go off and hang out with all the other designers and come back with a with a PSD that would say, hey, here's the product we're building. Like, let's go build it. With respect to Timeline, there were kind of two things, two big initiatives that I remember back in 2011. Uh, maybe, maybe you could say three. The first one was we were getting ready for the IPO. And so there was a lot of work, you know, kind of battening down the hatches, so to speak. The second was was timeline was was about to be announced. So there was a huge amount of work into that. And then the third one was, you know, this big shift to mobile, which happened, you know, kind of towards the end of 2011. Um, so those are the three big initiatives. With timeline, there was a, a team that was sent to go build timeline. And they had a PM and a designer and a, and a whole whole set of engineers to go do it. And then once they kind of built the V0 of timeline that shipped to employees, the photos and videos parts of that started being handed off to us. And they, they were kind of like, hey, now do like the, the real version of this, so to speak. Um, so they, they had built kind of a, a V0 photos integration. And then we kind of took it over and, and rebuilt it. And photos and videos were very, very tied together at Facebook. So I very quickly kind of started working on photos through that, throughout that process. And not long after you started your work on photos, you were a lead engineer or you were leading the team to some degree? Yeah. I mean, I thought I was doing a good job, but I got lucky, I guess. Uh, so I was working on video, started helping out on photos, and then, then got to know the photos code base really well. And right around then, Zuck says, hey, um, smartphones are going to be a big deal you know, the vast majority of, of Facebook users are going to be on mobile really soon. If we miss this opportunity, we're we're going to have a bad time. And so we started pulling all these these people off of, you know, the web and, and kind of middle tier teams to go work on mobile clients and just threw like tons of people on it. And so my team turned over pretty quick. Like a lot of people went over to iOS or Android to start building the the photos product over there or to build the newsfeed product over there. And so very quickly, like I was the the most tenured person on that team after having been at the company for like a year. This is web photos specifically. Yeah. Th- so this is like web photos and the the domain logic around photos. So the the mobile client will talk to some PHP endpoints. It says like, hey give me all the photos. And then there's a bunch of privacy checking and figuring out who's tagged and what. And so we owned the code that generated the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, as well as the data fetching and and um, some of the privacy code. Okay. So all the mobile teams had to interface with you also. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Was there something that you had done, you know, in terms of your, your strategy or your diplomacy or just you know, showing that you could write code really quickly and interface with people productively that stands out as 
you know, because you 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 joined the company around 2011, and then by you know by t- end of 2012, I guess you were kind of leading this photos team, or was it just a matter of attrition? Uh, I mean, attrition had something to do with it, but I think I stepped up to the plate for sure. So I think there's a couple of things: being available and responsible or responsive to customer requests is huge, even on Sunday. Yeah, even on Sunday. That's right. But it was it was the type of thing where. A mobile engineer has a question about how we do some rendering of photos on web because they're trying to rebuild it on mobile. You know, I would be in IRC at the time or 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 whatever it was we were using, the the Facebook groups later on. And they would ask the question and I would answer the question really quickly and and very quickly people start kind of associating my name or whoever's answering the questions with the product. And then you start to understand the customer needs really well. And as long as you're still actually kind of pushing the product forward at the same time that you're talking to customers, that usually gives you um, a really good perspective on what people want and what the rough edges are in the API or the service that you're maintaining. So I think that was that was a big part of it. I also had a really good manager who who told me, hey, Pete, you've got a lot of potential, but like the manager can't like bestow upon you the respect of the team or bestow upon you the responsibility of promotion unless you're actually already at that level. And that that was a that was a pretty good piece of advice that she gave me. One thing I've noticed talking to other Facebook engineers is there is this notion where engineers become engineering leadership, but that does not preclude them from having managers. So when you have these engineers that become leaders it, to some degree, but they still have managers, what's the dynamic there? What's the role of the manager and what's the role of that engineer that has established clout in the company. Yeah. So I think the relationship between um, an engineer and a manager is, is a really interesting one to talk about. I've noticed that it's different at different places. So for example, I'm at Twitter right now. And I think Twitter uh, has a lot of the way that, that Twitter treats engineering managers is similar to a lot of companies, which is engineering managers are responsible for the backlog um, oftentimes, they're the product owner. So they, so engineering managers at Twitter, we have kind of final say on what gets in and what doesn't get into a particular product. And at Facebook, it wasn't like that at all. And I think different teams at Facebook operate in different ways. So, so I can't speak for every team. But in my experience, the engineering managers were pretty much just coaches. And they didn't really have too much of a say in in the actual work that was being done. So we would work directly with a PM and the PM would run the the weekly or twice a week meeting that says, hey, here's all the tasks we need to do. Here's the prioritization. Let's go through it. A lot of it was self-directed as well. So a lot of a lot of kind of the when Facebook works well, Facebook the engineering organization works well, the PM comes in and says, hey, here's the objective we want to meet. And then the engineers just go and kind of figure out what they need to do, get approvals on the thing that they're going to ship if they need to, and then then they ship it. So in, in that way, the engineering manager's responsibility is mostly recruiting, performance management. So if you're doing a great job, we make sure that you're recognized for that. And if you're not doing a great job, we work with you to try to get you to be doing a great job. Unblocking various types of coaching. So if you if you aren't making progress and you're always blocked by another team, putting those, those the right people in the same room to to have that conversation but generally like a pretty hands-off management culture in terms of the responsibility of senior engineers yeah I mean that's a pretty broad question I, I don't know if there's something in particular that you wanted to focus in on well I'm just wondering because there are places where the in fact most places the manager is in a role where the engineers are deferring very much to the manager. And that's how it would sound, like the manager manages the engineer, the manager leads the engineers. But my sense is that at least in in some early days of Facebook, you know, the product was just was just, you know, had so much traction, you know, everybody was was moving really quickly and you know, I guess there was an extent to which the engineers were leading the development as much as the managers were organizing the engineers. Oh, yeah, I definitely think so. And I, I think there were cultural aspects to that. I think number one, so so when you, when you look at the structure of, of Facebook engineering in those days, like it, it kind of looks a little chaotic. There weren't much in the ways of OKRs. And if there were, nobody knew what they were. 
but there was a culture of of kind of moving really fast. Everybody was committing on the same code base, and there was this strong sense of shared ownership of the code base. So you would never get into a situation where you own the photos code base and I own the videos code base and I need to make a change that puts videos in albums. This was a, a task that we did. And we never got in a situation where the photos team would say, no, you're not allowed to commit to my code base. Oftentimes they would be added as reviewers, but the cultural norm was anyone can, can, can land code in any part of the code base and that's, that's fine. And so when you have, when you combine kind of a, a clear sense of, of direction, so Facebook, the product had like a very clear um, and simple direction that it was going with this culture of moving fast and shared ownership that leads to, you know, a lot of, a lot of technical decisions being made at, at kind of the leaves of the tree. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You joined the Instagram team shortly after the acquisition in 2012, most tech acquisitions fail. And the Instagram acquisition was perhaps the most successful tech acquisition in history. Uh, YouTube was pretty good. <laughs> YouTube was pretty good. Okay. We'll see. I guess this is this is something we'll have to we'll have to check back in on in 10 years. Tell me the story of the Instagram acquisition from your perspective. Yeah. So if you rewind to end of 2011, do you remember the app Facebook Camera? No. Okay, nobody does. So we had this app, Facebook Camera, and I remember this was, I, I started to develop, you know, some strong opinions around this project. So Facebook was always about, like, ship the minimum viable product. If you're not sure whether you should ship or not, you should ship, get the data, like ship it to a small, a small test group, get some data, roll it back if it sucks. Um, and the whole company was kind of like, like organized around that. When we started the shift to mobile, the shipping velocity really went down a lot. And, and Facebook camera was a great example. Instagram was getting really popular. We knew there was a big opportunity in mobile photos. So we were building a you know bespoke photo-specific app that was called Facebook camera. And I remember just like, this thing has never shipped. It was just taking a really long time to ship. And, and I remember... You know, sitting in in some of those presentations where they'd be like, "Yeah, we're trying to decide whether you should swipe to reveal the camera or press a button to reveal the camera." I'm just like, "Just ship one of those things, and and we'll we'll figure it out later." Now, you know, there's a school of thought, which is kind of the Apple school of thought, which is ship a very polished, very beautiful, very perfect mobile app. A lot of companies have been really successful doing that. I was like a year or two in my career. I don't claim to to be right or wrong about that, but I think it was a, something to consider. Anyway, so we ended up shipping Facebook camera, you know, and then maybe three months later, you know, at 8 a.m., um, our VP engineering reaches out to our team and, and, you know, I was on the kind of server side part of Facebook camera and they were like, hey, we got a big announcement. Just so you know, we're going to announce in an in, in hour that we're acquiring Instagram and they're going to come to the office later today. So please give them a warm welcome. And like this was a company that we were viciously competing with. Facebook, as everybody knows, is a very proud company. And when Facebook was, or when Instagram was kicking their ass, like everybody was taking it personally. And so it's like, oh, these people are now your friends. Uh, so it was a little weird and they, you know, they showed up and we got uh, like lunch or coffee with them. There's a, I remember there's a photo that a bunch of, a, a lot of the people on the Instagram team are now my friends. And there's a, a photo that somebody took from the balcony of them walking in kind of like clearly bewildered because I, I think like a lot of the employees didn't know they were getting acquired until that day too. So everyone was kind of like, oh, what what's going on? That was a weird day, but it, it did end up being a really successful acquisition and, you know, I think I learned a lot watching that acquisition happen and being somewhat a part of it as I was the first kind of individual engineer to go over full time to work on that team. Um, so it was, it was really interesting to kind of be part of that. So the first thing that I think made it work was they put Instagram, we had these, these kind of garage conference rooms in the, in the campus, which were really nice. They were like kind of trendy garages that were like totally, totally nice. And we, we just put them in that, that kind of garage space. And it was basically like, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Like we're not going to go in and make a bunch of changes immediately. I don't know what types of conversations like Mike and Kevin were having at the time. But for your rank and file, nothing had changed except they got nicer laptops and an HR department, you know, that kind of thing. 
And then I think the pitch to them was, hey, we're just going to give you like a ton of Facebook resources to go make your product even more successful. And so I was one of those resources. And I, by the way, I hate like calling people resources. That's like one of my big pet peeves. But I think resources in that context is like data centers as well and, and reach and an audience and stuff like that. So I went over, my role was to kind of build out a lot of the web stuff. Um, I had been working on, Facebook likes to, or at least back then, liked people to rotate off of teams every 18 months, 12 to 18 months. And I was hitting the the 18 month mark, I think, or maybe a little bit beyond that. And so they were like, hey, how about you go try out, try try being the first person to go over to Instagram, which was a lot of fun. And at Instagram, you were working with AWS infrastructure, whereas most of the Facebook infrastructure to that point was homegrown. What was the difference between building on Facebook infrastructure versus public cloud? Oh, it was totally different. And I kind of came in and I was I was pretty surprised at at what they were doing. Uh, so there were there were some things that I thought Facebook you know was doing better, right? I mean, Facebook was a more mature company. So for example, better developer tooling around tests and CI, right? And Facebook had this really great data fetching and caching and privacy layer that Instagram was a much simpler app and it didn't need. Its privacy model was was way, way simpler. So, but it, was, it wasn't there and I, it seemed like something that I would have expected to be there. But there were some things that were really great. So Facebook, or sorry, Instagram was on continuous deployment or at least something close to it. So any engineer at any time could run this command called YOLOUT, which would you like push the site out. And I thought that was crazy because the way that Facebook did deployments back then was every Tuesday at 2 p.m., every engineer would have to say, hey, I'm in in, IR- in an IRC room and then sit around for like three or four hours as the site was gradually pushed out to everybody. And if you weren't in IRC, we'd just like revert all of your commits and like roll out the version of the site that without you. And the fact that that Instagram was on kind of like continuous deployment was was shocking to me. I had, I, I was like, these startup people are crazy, but it ended up being awesome. And I think um, Facebook is now on continuous deployment as well. What did you learn about management when you were at Instagram? Well, I was an, an individual contributor there for over a year um, before I switched over to management. So I had been taking a lot of the the management, the Facebook management courses and, and stuff like that. So I kind of knew, knew at a high level how it worked. You know, again, we kind of took the, I kind of managed my team at Instagram the way that most teams at Facebook were managed, which was the PM is the product owner, the designer is kind of co-owns the product with the PM and the engineering team goes and executes. And your role as a manager is to kind of step back, let the process happen and only kind of insert yourself into the process when something seems broken. And so that that's kind of how I, how I ran the team there. There's a lot of I learned just you've got to just do management for a while to to really learn it. So how to run a one-on-one, how to spot problems before they they kind of escalate. Somebody tells you something, how to get to the bottom of like where that comes from. Uh, that was all stuff that I learned on the job at Instagram. Was there anything that had been opaque about the management structure beforehand that was revealed to you during that? management training and learning the ropes of being a manager that, you know, sort of clarified how management had been working at Facebook? Yeah. So let's see. So number one, I think all of the best managers I've ever had are professional managers, as in they don't write code anymore. They don't want to write code anymore. They're still technically sharp and like you can't tell them something that's totally wrong and they like they'll they'll understand what you're doing but they have no desire to to write code or weigh in on technical decisions and those are the best managers because they're focused on the stuff that you that you the individual engineer aren't focused on so how do i put together a good case to be promoted what skills am i lacking like a lot of engineers are really good at writing code but the instant you ask them hey why did you do that like even if they know that they have a good reason for doing it. Like a lot of times it's just hard to articulate that. And I think a good manager, you know, 
says, Hey, here's how you would articulate this. Let's talk about how you would, how you would kind of mostly, it's mostly like a communication and a psychological safety job, I'd say. So that was one thing that I learned. Value and focus on recruiting is another one. I think recruiting is super important. React was open sourced around this time. Why was it valuable for Facebook to start open sourcing its projects? Not a lot of people thought it was. So Facebook had done some open source work in the past and kind of threw threw some stuff over the wall and let it rot. And the open source community actually hated Facebook. Um, I mean, if you go Google for the 320 iOS framework and like how Facebook treated that project, and that's the context for like the animosity in the developer community towards Facebook at the time. So when I went over to, to Instagram, they wanted... They said, hey, we've got all these photo pages, like we got photo pages, profile pages, news feeds, that kind of thing, written in mustache templates and jQuery, uh, rendered in this Django app that runs on AWS. And for a number of reasons, you know, the infrastructure team told me that it's got to be client rendered and it can't be server rendered. And so they were, they said, hey, just go, go deliver these, go finish these products and deliver them. And I went to our UIE team, user interface engineering team, that was Tom Okino was managing it. Jordan Walk was was on the team. And I asked them, I said, hey, we got a client render something. I haven't seen us use jQuery at or mustache at Facebook. What's the state of the art for client rendering? And they said, well, you know, we've got these like three or four different projects in kind of the incubator that we're working on. We've got Bolt JS, JS HTML. There's some other thing because um, we had bought the like the WebOS team or something, and they came with some framework. That framework turned into Bolt.js, and we've got this thing React, which we used for one tiny little experiment. And and I I went and I did an eval, and the React kind of getting started doc was super impressive. I, I mean, it's kind of like magical when you first use the thing. You're like, how does this thing possibly work? And so you know, I made the call to like go with React and. First thing we had to do was like do an internal open source from this like PHP, PHP centric world that was kind of diverged from the open source mainstream and pull that over into the Instagram stack, which was super kind of, you know, circa 2012 startup open source mainstream. That was a lot of work. But once we got the kind of initial web app launched, we were like, wow, that was, um, I mean, there's a ton of rough edges, but. This was way better than the existing jQuery mustache thing that came before it. And there was just a lot of appetite on the Instagram side, as well as the Facebook side to get this thing open sourced. And with GraphQL, I don't know if this was the case with React, but with GraphQL, when I talked to Lee and Nick, they told me that they took a long time to make sure that the open source announcement would be successful. So this, it was in contrast to the move fast and break things approach, there was a protracted release process for GraphQL. Was that the case with React also? Well, getting it launched and all the internal stuff that you have to do took a little while. Uh, you know, you got to talk to legal and you got to package it up and you got to build a website and documentation. And there were many nights that me and and Christopher Shadow and I think Tim Young or was was there as well. We're just kind of like putting in the work. But with respect to the launch plan, it was basically like, I think we had sponsored JSConf and Tom Okino had a keynote slot that he could allocate. And so we were like, yeah, we'll launch it at JSConf and everybody will think it's great. And so that's what we did. And, you know, again, the developer community did not like Facebook. And they, the response was not, not good. It was, very, it was very much like negative on, on React. And it was this whole thing that we had worked so hard on. We were all really excited about launching this thing. And the developer community was like, Facebook's a bunch of clowns. You guys are using XML. And even worse, you're putting XML in the JavaScript. Like, what, what is going on? You're not separating concerns. And so I, th- I don't know. I don't want to put words in like Lee or, or Nick's mouth. But my guess is they probably remembered that launch and they were like, we're not going to make the same mistake that React made when they launched. Now we, we were able to recover it six months later, but it was still, you know, it wasn't the most fun to, to see on Twitter, the, the response to that, that announcement. React has developed a really strong following online. 
and it kind of superseded Angular as the most popular framework from from my point of view. Was React actually superior to Angular, or was it just marketed more effectively? Oh, man. You're asking me to go on record about this? <laughs> I think it is. I clear, and I would I, argue that those things could be one and the same. If you have good developer documentation and you have good outreach strategies, that is equivalent to marketing, and that is what wins people over. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's totally And there's true. network effects. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I think... You're you're being like irresponsible if you're open sourcing something and trying to convince people to use it if you don't truly believe that it's better than the solutions that are out there. So yes, everybody working on React thought that we had a better mousetrap, um, at least for a, a decent po- subset of the population than what was already existing. I'll caveat that with, I think that if you look at the popularity of Angular and then the, the, the rapid rise of Vue.js, there is clearly a segment of the web developer population that wants to write markup annotated with some magic attributes to kind of bring their web page to life. And like, that is not what I want to do. That is not what most kind of people that come from a CS or software engineering or, or even hobbyist programmer background want to do. But for those that were that kind of cut their teeth on HTML and CSS and and that's where they feel most comfortable, like that's there's a market for that. Uh, but I think for you know people that that have the title software engineer or think of themselves as programmers first, not web designers first, React was clearly a better technology uh, across a number of different dimensions. When you left Facebook, you started Smite. Yep. What adjustments did you have to make to how you thought about building product and building teams when you went from a large organization like Facebook to building your own company? Yeah, so the first thing that you notice when you when you leave to start your own company and this was especially true for for me because I had I had done a lot of advocacy and development on React and I, I had a bit of a personal brand. I was like, "Oh, everybody's going to want to work for me because I'm, I'm so great. Wrong. Like hiring is actually super hard as a startup, no matter who you are. And the Facebook engineering brand and bootcamp and all the great like sourcers and recruiters and closers that, that they had there, um, which we just didn't have, you take that for granted. And when you leave, like that's the first thing that you notice. The other thing, which might be kind of more smite specific is is I went from from a very large scale B2C application to a to a small B2B startup. And so the the way that you interface and get value from customers is is different. So at at Facebook, we would launch a product, we would watch the graph go up and get really excited and then we would watch TechCrunch write about our new product launch. At Smite, we would actually get to talk to the customer and like, you know, we would get to know them a little bit and and we would get really great high quality feedback as opposed to at Facebook where you kind of like look at all the things you're measuring and you try to guess what what people are what people actually want um, we could actually talk to the customer which was nice but also you know we would never get write-ups in in publications or anything like that um, so you know it's a, it's just different but I think the big thing is is recruiting eventually you got acquired by Twitter and we talked we talked about the the smite company experience in, in a previous episode to some degree. But now that you're at Twitter, you get to see how the product development process differs between arguably the, the two leading social networking companies. How does the product development process at Twitter contrast with that of Facebook? Yeah. So the first one that I feel... So, so I, I manage a couple engineering teams. And the role of an eng manager here is is much different than than at Facebook, at least in in my part of the world. Again, you know, I'm expected to be the product owner at Twitter, and at at fa- Facebook, the PM and the design designer were more the product owner. And so that that's just a different different feeling from a technical perspective. Twitter went all in on microservices, and if you don't know the the story of Twitter, the Basically, there was this big monolithic Rails app that would fall over all the time. 
And so the company sat down and said, hey, we, we got to go fix all the fail whales, which is what they would call the, the error page. And the solution is we're going to break the monolith into multiple independent services. And at the because we're going to be rewriting the whole site anyway, like let's rewrite it in Scala and run it on the JVM. And so that is the current state of things today is that every team runs its own couple of services, generally written in Scala, all the services talk to each other, contrast, and, and there's strong ownership on, on those services and code bases. Contrast that with Facebook. And you know, remember how I was talking about how any, there's an expectation that anybody can land code in any part of the code base and you're supposed to accept the diffs. That's, that's very different. Facebook was largely, at least to the, the product engineering team, which I think was, you know, basically the biggest engineering team, uh, hundreds of people, all on one big monolithic app, all committing code where they need to commit the code to deliver the application. And so that, that I think from a technical level is, is probably the biggest difference. And what's so amazing about the Facebook story is the degree to which the Facebook engineering team managed to bend PHP to its will, or at least that's that's one of the things that impresses me the most. And like I've talked to Keith Adams a couple times about oh, yeah. the HHVM stuff, and that was a an unconventional approach I, from my perspective. Like what what Facebook ended up doing with PHP, and and here you're saying that perhaps there was some detriment to breaking up the. Twitter monolith into microservices. So it's it's interesting because the Facebook story presents an unconventional decision that worked out well. The Twitter story presents a, perhaps a, a conventional decision that worked out less well. Has it given you any insight into how to make engineering decisions according to quote-unquote best practices? Well, I mean, the, the title of my first talk ever was Rethinking Best Practices. So I, I've always... You've got to have kind of like a, a respect and understanding for what the best practices are and then, and then know when to, when to bend those or break those. So the way that I think about this is, let's think about why, man, there's so many interesting topics to talk about here. If you talk, if you talk to Keith Adams, um, he says that PHP got the most important, like one of the most important things about PHP is its process model. So PHP gets everything wrong, except when you start up a new web request, you get a totally clean slate with no shared state. I wasn't around for the mo- for the the big monolithic Rails app, but I think a lot of people's concerns with Rails is that there's you know shared state between different people's requests, and it's pretty hard to guarantee isolation between those requests, both in terms of kind of like privacy and and uh, resource utilization. So PHP actually like had some positive characteristics. But I think, look at why people split things out into separate services and and take the microservice approach. It usually comes down to, you know, our organization is structured this way and we can move faster if we own our, our, you know, one piece of the code base ourselves. We can deploy whenever we want. We can talk to other teams through these stable interfaces. So it gives us a lot of freedom to go and and do our own thing without being blocked by other teams. Is is that like a fair representation of of the microservice argument? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Okay. So, I think that's great if you know what your org structure is going to be over some time horizon or you know what the product requirements are going to be over some time horizon. But the problem is as anybody that's worked in a big company for more than a year knows, reorgs happen all the time, product direction changes all the time, and so you end up with these services that you have to maintain forever that match the org structure and the product requirements from like five years ago. But, you know, today they don't make a lot of sense. So I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but the Facebook approach basically optimizes for future unknowns. So it it embraces, hey, we don't know how to chop up the application in a way that will work for tomorrow. So we're going to just assume that we're going to have to coordinate across different systems and different parts of the code base. And we're just going to make that coordination as cheap as possible, as opposed to the, the microservice approach, which is we're going to solve the coordination problem by just not coordinating. 
um, or by minimizing the amount of times that we have to coordinate. And I, I think that in, in my opinion, embracing the, the future unknowns and just saying, Hey, we're going to have to coordinate a lot. We're going to minimize that coordination cost is the better approach. You see this with a lot of people or a lot of companies that have moved from lots of small Git repos to one big mono repo. I mean, I know that this is still debated endlessly, but at the end of the day, people don't like to version code. If we have all these different Git repos and we've got to be very careful about when we push a new release, what features, you know, what are the breaking changes, that kind of thing. And that's an example of, of, you know, like there, there is coordination between even these separate services that that has a cost, and you got to minimize that cost. Is that that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, taking a step back, you're a connoisseur of social networks. You've <laughs> used all of them. You've been a part of many of them, most of them. Well, the biggest ones by volume. Tell I have friends me, at Snap. That's the only you one. You have I'm friends missing. at Snap. Okay, <laughs> tell me something that you believe about social networks that I would not hear anywhere else? Oh boy, that's a hard one. So, I mean, some of the, some of the use cases for these networks are, are really surprising, but I think, so as, as somebody that's, that's, that's worked on this, this stuff for a really long time, I think social networks are in a lot of ways, a mirror and an accelerant. So a lot of the, concerns that people have about social networks are about people. And they're like fundamental human problems that we've been struggling with for a long time. Um, and the only difference between social networks and the way that, that things that, that like we've evolved as a society before are that, that social networks just make everything faster. And so that's, that's kind of my perspective on, I don't know if that's different. I mean, I think Probably many people have said that before, but that's a hard question. Fair enough. We have entered this time where we've moved beyond the era where social networking was zero sum. So Facebook arguably took MySpace's lunch. Tumblr has lost some market share. But most of the other social networks seem to be growing in in a non-zero-sum way. So like LinkedIn feels like it's growing. Quora feels like it's growing. Twitter, I don't know if it's growing by usage, but user interactions, but it's it certainly feels like it's growing in terms of its prominence and its usefulness. Yeah, it's it's actually, we're doing great. I'm really excited about being here. I, I believe it. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm it's, not... one, it's one of those situations when like I love the product and then I came inside to see how the sausage was made and I was like, oh, like this was a lot better than expected. <laughs> Twitter's the only app I've had to uninstall from my phone to restrain myself. I t- I'm typically a disciplined person, but I've had to uninstall it. But has something fundamentally changed where we've gone from this world of zero-sum social networking to where we have all of these different social networking apps and it feels like they're all serving different utilities? Yeah, I, th- I think... So Twitter has positioned itself as... So if you go and install Twitter in the App Store, it's under the news section. It's not under the, the social networking section. Twitter positions itself as serving the public conversation, which is very different use case than, than Facebook, for example. Twitter doesn't want to be in the business... Or, or Instagram. Uh, Twitter doesn't want to be in the business of connecting you with your friends and sharing you know, important moments with your family. That's, that's a place for Facebook. Increasingly, it's a place for Instagram. For Twitter... It's about talking about serious stuff and topical things. And so I used Twitter to connect with my industry peers, and I used it to talk a lot about React back when I was really involved in the React community. People use it to talk about public events. There is. Have you seen the the Fire Festival documentary? Of course. Yeah, there, there's a really good ad for Twitter at the end where they're like, Fire Festival was marketed on Instagram, but the story about how bad it was broke on Twitter. And so the, the company got really excited about that one when we saw that in the Netflix documentary. And that's almost an understatement. I mean, it's a microcosmic understatement of how much impact Twitter's having. Is there anything, coming back to Facebook, is there anything from your time at Facebook and now that you've you know been outside of Facebook for a while and you have a deep understanding of what's going on across the industry, what is it about Facebook that other engineering organizations should emulate? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that really emphasizing 
speed is important. So a lot of engineering orgs, there's a big checklist of stuff you have to do. Um, and there's never really a, an item on the checklist that says ship quickly. So, so I, I think emphasizing speed is important. There's another thing that Facebook does. So, so it, a lot of companies are basically modeled after Google, right? And they, they take their promo rubrics from Google. They take their hiring and interviewing strategy from Google. And one of the things that Google really values is, you know, doing technically challenging work and doing things that haven't been done before with computers. Facebook does not care about that. They like, or, or at least back when I was there, Facebook was all about customer focus, get, a, get as many people using the service as you can, bring value to them. And uh, if you can do it with a big ball of PHP and not doing anything clever, like that's the best solution. But eventually when you get to like half a billion monthly active users, you need to build a you know, a new type of graph data store. And then Facebook would kind of like grudgingly do that um, as opposed to my stereotype of Google, which is like everybody's itching to do that. Um, so I think that's a that's an important cultural thing as well. Um, but really optimizing, thinking about your engineering org and optimizing around what are the future unknowns with respect to kind of coordination between teams and how do we, how do we hedge against that? So, you know, monorepo, monolith, that kind of thing. Critics who are reading this or listening to it are going to be saying, Facebook moved too fast, though, and there were consequences. What do you think about the downsides of moving too fast? Yeah. So this is a conversation about software engineering and technical stuff. And if you look at the criticisms of of Facebook, you know, they're they're not really around... I don't I don't know the last time anybody it's mostly around policy, right? Like even in a lot of the the kind of most popular news articles about Facebook over the last year or two and it's been really really critical. They've all been around, hey, your platform policy was wrong or so and so like used the API in a way that it was like the API worked as designed, but they then used the data in a way that was was against policy, and then you didn't go and 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 go enforce your policy. I don't, I don't know. I'm like I'm not super close to to the specifics there, and I don't know anything that anybody else knows doesn't know. But the the fact is is you want your your leadership to make decisions, and then engineering's job is to go and and execute those decisions quickly and at high quality. And Facebook's engineering org is is really really good at that, in my opinion. So. You know, there's there's plenty of criticisms about social media's role in society, plenty of criticisms about Facebook in particular and and the decisions that were made. This is not my place to really talk about that. But in terms of like executing on that stuff really, really fast and efficiently, I think that everybody should strive to to have that level of, of efficiency and execution. Okay. Pete Hunt, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. Wow. 